The difficulty speaking after an introduction like that is it's all downhill from there. <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation to be back. We appreciate that a great deal. Uh, let me get a drink to get started. The sound check is good, I presume? Okay. Uh, thank you for the invitation to be here. I always enjoy when I get back every year or two, whatever the timing is. And um, uh, I will go ahead and mention that uh, Tracy wants to uh, say hi. She wouldn't be here, but she has my, uh, she wants me to say hi for her. And she's doing well teaching women's Bible studies in our church in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, our son Scott, who is on the music staff of the big church in St. Louis, he and his wife Heather are expecting their first baby in February, and the best part is that little munchkin is due on my birthday, February 22. Uh, ben, our other son, who's the vice president of TTI, he and a team just returned from Tanzania in Southeast Africa, uh, where we teach regularly, and we are building a training center there for pastors to come in from about a dozen countries. Uh, and this training center will accommodate up to 300 pastors at a time. And there will be a church planted there and some other ministries that will go out from there. And uh, we're, we're very enthused about the progress that is being made by the construction team over there. Um, I am scheduled to go to Costa Rica in October. So we are, we are trying to ramp up as the pandemic seems to be subsiding, sort of. And uh, we haven't been able to be in the air for about 18 months because of that. But as I said, Ben and the team were just in Tanzania. I'll be in Costa Rica in October. And we hope to get ramped up to our uh, other countries as, as we can. When we think of the gospel, uh, John 3.16 typically comes to mind. That's understandable because it's a beautiful one-verse summary of the gospel message. Um, but the gospel is richer than any one verse can contain, as our passage will reveal here in a few moments. We could title this message, The Richness of the Gospel. Or we could bring out more details and call it The Greatness of God and the Gospel of Grace. I kind of like the poetic rhythm of that one. Or we could emphasize our benefits by entitling it From Slavery to Sin to Heirs of God. All those titles are true, and they all fit this passage, as you'll see in a moment. I don't know if you have an outline available, but if you do, it will help you follow along as we explore this very dense passage. Please follow as I read from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. If you're not in that passage, please turn there. Whatever translation you have is fine. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. While you're turning there, I'll comment that we live in a very fortunate time to have a number of quality translations in our own English language. Uh, many parts of the world do not have a translation at all, or if they have one, it may be very crude, not very good yet. Uh, but we are very fortunate. All right, beginning with Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
There are probably a dozen sermons in that passage. Uh, We're only going to do one this morning. And uh, I'm going to approach this text a little bit differently than usual. Normally, I go directly through the text as written, phrase by phrase by phrase, verse by verse by verse. But what I'm going to do this morning is more of a doctrinal exposition because Paul has written so many doctrinal introductions by phrases and words he has used. So we're going to do it a little bit differently, but I think you'll see by the end of our time, we have covered all the bases in the text. There are a lot of goodies in this passage. So we're going to do some very serious thinking this morning. So... Get ready. In this text, we see two eternal realities. We see three actions by God, and we see two results for us. The two eternal realities are the Trinity and God's plan. The three actions are the Father sending the Son, the Son redeeming mankind, and the Father sending the Spirit. The two results for us are adoption into God's family and becoming heirs of God. Well, let's consider each of those in the grand sweep of God's grace for us. We start with the eternal realities. First, some background. Before our space-time realm, there exists, I'm deliberately using present tense there, there exists a reality beyond anything we can imagine. An infinite, yet personal, triune God before anything else existed. And this God is not static. He thinks, he plans, he speaks, and he acts on our behalf. So let's begin by considering him and his plan, the two eternal realities in this passage. We start, number one, with the Trinity. The Father is mentioned four times in those verses I read. The Son shows up twice, and the Spirit is seen once. So the Trinity saturates that short paragraph seven different times. One person of the Trinity is mentioned. We need to remember that ultimate reality is not material, physical stuff like this pulpit. Ultimate reality is not our space-time continuum. It's not impersonal energy. It's not some indefinable pantheistic oneness like Eastern religions would say. It's not the smallest elements of string theory from within theoretical physics. Ultimate reality is a glorious, beautiful, infinite, personal being. And he has revealed himself as one in essence, or what he is, but three in persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons are equal in their essence, or what they are, which theologians call the trinity of being, but the three emphasize different roles or functions related to creation and our salvation, called the trinity in action. And that variation of function will become evident as we look at God's plan in just a minute. Peter makes an interesting comment regarding the Trinity in 2 Peter 1.4. He says, we are invited into fellowship with this triune God, the ultimate reality. We are invited into a relationship with the ultimate reality. Because, Peter says, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that, through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Well, first, a few things it does not mean. In general, we can see that God is inviting us to join his eternal party, if you want to call it that. But Peter is not saying that God gives us deity. We do not become God. We do not become part of God. We do not become little gods. All those variations are heresies proposed by some of the cults and false religions. Peter is not saying any of those. This is Peter's way of saying that God makes it possible for us to have some degree of some of his traits or characteristics. In other words, in some way we partially become like God. Specifically, like God the Son, Jesus Christ. As Paul says in a very concise passage, Romans 8, 29, God is in the business of making us conformed to the image of his Son. Whether you think of it or not, your real job on earth as a believer is to become like Jesus. Now, you may make your living as an accountant or a carpenter or a nurse or a teacher or whatever, but your real role as God's child is to become like his unique son, Jesus Christ. And our passage that we're looking at explains more how that happens. Well, what we've considered so far, I know this is deep stuff, so let's go back and review very concisely or summarize. This passage tells us that ultimate reality is God in Trinity. And he wants to share some of his traits, at least some degree of his traits, with us. That implies that God has a plan. Specifically, a plan to develop Christ-likeness in us. And that brings us to the second eternal reality. The first one was the Trinity. The second is God's plan. Note this statement in verse 4 of our passage. But when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. In other words, something had been accomplished so that some further action could begin. That implies planning. That's not random accidental stuff. There's purposeful intent going on. There's a plan. God's plan is the eternal decision by the three persons of the Trinity to restore fallen mankind into relationship with himself. Remember, he created mankind, Adam and Eve, in the garden with a wonderful relationship with him, which they blew, they threw away by their sin. God's plan is to restore that relationship and even improve on it to be better. We need to talk about God's planning a little bit because sometimes there's a misunderstanding. No passing of time is involved with God's planning. In other words, we should not think that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are sitting around a conference table discussing options. Adam and Eve just sinned. What do we do now? Well, I think maybe, maybe plan A is best. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe plan B is better, and so they have to hash it out and figure out what to do. There's no passing of time in God's planning. Since God is infinite in all his capacities, he has known his plan forever. God's plan has existed as long as God has existed. There never was a time when God's plan did not exist, and then a time when it did exist as a result of some process. God's plan has always been there. Our phrase in our text, when the fullness of time had come, refers to the point in human history 
when God began to execute that plan, the entrance of his son into the human race in the incarnation. We'll consider that a little more in our next point. Historically, this fullness of time refers to when God had sovereignly orchestrated all the human elements, the political stability of the Roman Empire, the nearly universal use of the Greek language, the religious heritage of ancient Judaism. God had brought all those together in first century Palestine, all the groundwork, all the preparation had been laid, and God said, now. And the incarnation occurred. So, again, to kind of summarize, an infinite personal God exists in triune harmony, and he has a plan to bring us into relationship with himself. It gets easier from here. <laughs> For those of you who feel like you might be swimming in the deep water, so we're going to go to a little more of the shallow end of the pool now. After seeing those two eternal realities, we're going to consider God's three actions. To set that up, let's say God is not a mere theorist. He backs up his plan with action. Motivated by mercy, he implements his intent by executing his plan. He does what he desires. So let's look at the three actions by God as part of his eternal plan. Number one. The Father sent the Son. In verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That sending refers to the incarnation of Christ. Let's notice something here also that is sometimes a, a subtle underlying point that we might skip over and not notice, but it's very important. Being sent implies Christ's preexistence because you can't be sent unless you already exist. The eternal second person of the Trinity entered the human race, born of the Virgin Mary, during the time of the Mosaic Law. Christ had existed and been deity forever. But at this point in human history, Jesus' humanity began. The main passage for that is from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It refers to Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think the word exploited is probably a better translation at that point. A thing to be exploited or used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's one of the densest theological passages in Scripture, somewhat parallel to our own. Um, so we obviously don't have time to unpack all of that. That's a whole different message. But I'll summarize two things in that passage. The process of what's going on and the result of that process. The process is this. In becoming human, the eternal Christ did not cease being God. Critical point, I'm going to say it again. In becoming human, the eternal Christ did not cease being God. Christ has always been God. He was God during the incarnation. He is God now. He will forever be God. What he emptied himself of was not his deity. 
what he did was temporarily and voluntarily set aside the privileges of his position and the display of his glory. How? By adding humanity. And that covered all his glory. And that, that placed some voluntary restraint on the full use of his divine abilities. He still had them, he still could use them, but he self-restrained himself by adding humanity. So the result is what theologians call the hypostatic union. I know you've just been itching to hear that phrase. And you can throw that in around coffee sometime with some strangers, they'll think you're brilliant. The hypostatic union. What's really important is not that you remember that phrase, but that you remember what it means. That is important. It means that Jesus Christ has two natures, one divine, one human. Jesus Christ has two natures in one person so that he is 100% deity and 100% humanity at the same time without mixture or loss of any trait of either nature. Jesus Christ has two natures in one person so that he's 100% deity and 100% humanity at the same time without mixture or loss of any trait of either nature. Or stated more simply, he's not a 50-50 hybrid. He's not like the mythical gods of Mount Olympus who were partly deity and partly humanity. That's not what Jesus Christ is. He is both fully God and fully man at the same time. So, God has an eternal plan. He has launched that plan into human history with the virginal conception and birth of Jesus. Why did he do that? Well, that's our second statement of God's action from verse 5. The Son redeemed mankind. Note verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. God's first action was sending his Son. His second action tells us the purpose for doing that. This word redeem is one of the favorite words for those of us who are Christians, or the noun redemption. In the ancient Roman Empire, the word was used basically as, as a term to buy something. And the way it was commonly pictured in the Roman Empire was that you could go to a slave market, of which there were many in the ancient Roman Empire. You could pay a price called a ransom price to buy a slave, and then you could set him free. Paul uses that word and that image often for what Christ did for us. His blood, picturing his death on the cross, was the ransom price to free us from slavery to sin. And in Galatians, the book we're looking at, it also and especially refers to our being liberated from slavery to the Mosaic law, which could never save, it could only condemn. In fact, consider Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Lest we conclude that only the Father and the Son are involved in our salvation and in God's plan for our redemption, Paul now includes the Holy Spirit in the third action taken by God in this passage. The Father sent the Spirit. He says in verses 5 and 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in verse 5, 
The Son was sent for our salvation. Now the Spirit is sent for our sanctification. Because the Father sent the Spirit, we have intimacy with the Father. We have intimacy with this God that I described briefly a while ago. How is that? How is it that we have intimacy with God? The Spirit has access to the depths of God. To all that God is, because He is God. The Spirit is 100% deity. So, the Spirit has full access to all that God is. And that Spirit indwells you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. God's eternal, holy, fully, 100% divine Spirit lives in you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And He is revealing some of the depths of God, because He has access to all the depths of God. And as he does that, we have increasing harmony in our relationship with God. With what Paul calls, he uses the phrase elsewhere, the mind of Christ. The thinking of Christ. And as we have more of the thinking of Christ, which is recorded in Scripture, we have increasing harmony with God. Our verse here speaks of the Spirit's universal indwelling of all believers in Jesus Christ. And that universal indwelling first occurred in Acts chapter 2 at the big festival of Pentecost when Peter gave that magnificent sermon, a big gospel presentation, and 3,000 believed, and the Holy Spirit descended upon them. That's the first, the universal indwelling of every believer occurred. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but that was a temporary indwelling and empowering of only select individuals for specific tasks, and then the Spirit would leave them. But now, in our time, every believer is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Corinthians were not living as though they knew that. Even though as believers it was true, they acted like it wasn't. Paul is chastising them. So we can, the Spirit can, does through us, and we can cry out, Abba, Father. Abba was a child's address for his father. It was a, a combination of, of intimacy and closeness and, and respect. And when we're born again, we enter into that kind of relationship with God where we can think of Him as our Father. Because He is our Father. And we grow in that intimacy of relationship as we learn His Word and live it in life. And as we spend time talking with Him in prayer and trusting Him in the hardships of life. As we go through all those things, our intimacy with God expands and increases. So the Father sending the Spirit to indwell us is God's third action. Well, after all that planning and all that acting, we would expect some results. And, and that's true. God accomplishes what he intends. God's batting average is 1,000. He's not like a good hitter. He hits 320 and you think he's going to be in the All-Star game. And we say, wow, that guy's a hitter. God bats 1,000. He does what he wants to do, and he never fails. So our third section is going to highlight some of that. And these are spectacular results, the two things, that should stun us. And I want us to listen to these two things as though we'd never heard them before. Sometimes we can become so familiar 
with some verses and, and some doctrines that, that we hear it for the 400th time and it just kind of passes over. and we say, yeah, that's great, what's next? So I want us to back up a step and these two things I'm going to talk about now, the two results for us. Imagine you had never heard these things before. Number one, we are adopted into sonship. God adopts us into his family. Note verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons, daughters implied. And verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. Again, daughters implied. God adopts you as his child when you believe in Jesus Christ. Imagine you'd never heard that before. That's kind of good news, isn't it? And before we talk more about that, though, let's not skip over our previous condition, slavery. Oh, that was really bad news. We were enslaved to three things in Scripture. We could probably find more. I can't cover all the bases. But three things that we were very clearly enslaved to. Number one, the law, the Mosaic law, Galatians 3.23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. A second thing we were enslaved to, sin. As Jesus said in John 8.34, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That was all of us as unbelievers. And number three, we were enslaved to death. More precisely, the fear of death in Hebrews 2.15 talking about our salvation, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That was our previous condition, enslaved to those three things. Now, back to sonship. The Old Testament pictured Israel as, you know, a, a child of God. God was seen as their father. But our larger context in Galatians compares Israel's Old Testament adoption to ours by saying they were like an underage child, a servant, even a slave. But Paul says now our adoption is full adult sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges of adulthood. So our status now is much better and much more intimate with God than it was with ancient Israel. We are adult children adopted by God. So you and I were, before salvation, we were in the most wretched condition possible. Enslaved to sin and bound for hell. Now we are children of God with all the rights and privileges of Christ and eternal wealth beyond our dreams. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are skid row bums compared to you. So the first result in this passage is that God adopts us as his child. And corresponding to that, we see the second result. We are heirs of God. Notice verse 7. And if a son, then an heir through God. Just like in the human dimension, Adoption means that child will inherit all that the family owns. And 
we are co-heirs with Christ, and thus we will inherit all that Christ will inherit from the Father. Consider our inheritance from Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the most spectacular passages in the Bible. It's, it's not necessarily easy to read and follow through. In fact, after the brief introduction in the first two verses, the rest of the chapter is just two big long sentences. Verse 3 to 14 is one sentence in Paul's Greek, and then verse 15 to the end is one sentence. Our translations, fortunately, to help us out, they break it up a little bit into three or four sentences so we can grasp it. Otherwise, it's just, it just overwhelms us. Well, in Ephesians 1, verses 11, 14, and 18, Paul mentions our inheritance. I'm going to put those all together to keep on the same point, and then I'm going to add something Peter says about it from 1 Peter 1, 4. Paul begins, In Christ... We have obtained an inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, meaning full possession after we die. Paul then prays that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, which Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept or guarded in heaven for you. That's your inheritance. Now, imagine you had a grandfather that was worth $10 billion, and you're going to get it all. Okay. It's nothing compared to the real inheritance you've got in heaven. That's peanuts compared to what is yours. I'm not speaking metaphorically. If you're a believer in Christ, you're an adopted child, you are an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, and you've got stuff coming to you after you croak, which you can't imagine now. Croak is the dignified theological word for dying. <laughs> Paul expands on this in Romans 8, 15 through 17. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul writes elsewhere that every believer in Christ will suffer with Christ Jesus, and we know from experience that is true. Everything God the Father owns is your inheritance. Imagine you'd never heard that before. Everything God owns is your inheritance as his adopted child. Well, what is that? Well, let's try to picture it a little bit. Physically or materially, it's the universe. From trillions of galaxies beyond the Hubble telescope to the tiniest vibrating strings of M-theory, beyond the strongest microscope. In other words, maximally outward and maximally inward, it's all yours. Spiritually, it includes spirit beings, the angels. Paul writes to the Corinthians, do you not know that we will judge angels? It's spiritual qualities like the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control to the maximum. Can you imagine living in a society where everybody has that description, all nine of those specifics of the fruit of the Spirit, 
to the maximum. Sounds like a pretty good town. And it's things, your inheritance is things we can't even imagine. As Paul hinted at very vaguely in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4. Paul says, I know this man who was caught up into paradise. He's referring to himself. It's, he's a humble guy and he doesn't want to say, hey, guess what I saw. It's a humble description of himself. I know this man who was caught up into paradise and he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. In other words, Paul says, I saw things and heard things I can't even tell you about. I'm not even allowed to speak of them. And you know what the best is in our inheritance? God himself. I take that to mean that we will experience an intense intimacy with the ultimate source of love and light and truth and joy and everything that's good. God himself. And I believe this intimacy with the Holy One will not be static, the same for billions of years, which theoretically could introduce the idea that eventually we'd get bored with it. I think it will be better every day, spiraling ever upward, better every morning, better every day, and new. And every day we'll say, wow, yesterday was something I can't imagine. We'll talk, top that. We wake up the next day, and it's even better forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And this is so beyond our thoughts that I kind of shudder to even think about it. And I dare not say much like Paul. It belongs to the secret things of God only to be unwrapped for us in eternity. What a passage. I told you there were some wonderful doctrinal tidbits within there. It's a smorgasbord of all the great theological delicacies. Uh, Paul was at the top of his game when he wrote that paragraph. Of course, inspired by the Spirit. Well, now, how do we apply this passage? What do we do with this? You know, we want to learn God's Word, and then we want to do what it says. Some passages are kind of easy to apply, where the author says, avoid these sins and pursue these virtues. Well, the application is pretty simple. We just kind of look at those, and we think, how does this relate to my life? How do we apply this passage? There isn't a whole lot of do these things and don't do those things. It's all these great theological truths. Well, I'm going to give you three points that I think are consistent with the passage for application. Number one. Know who you are. Know who you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You are an adopted child of God and a co-heir with Christ. That's not rhetoric. That's not metaphorical. That's reality. That's literal. If you're a believer, you are an adopted child of God. No privilege is greater than being part of God's family. The Olympics just occurred a while back. We saw those great athletes win those medals. You can win a dozen gold medals. That's wonderful. I applaud that. But that's nothing that compared to the privilege of being God's adopted child. If you come from a dysfunctional home, you have a perfect home in Christ. Your dysfunctional human home is temporary. It will end. Your perfect home in Christ is forever. So, Wallow in the joy and the thrill of God's love for you and the glorious eternity He has planned for you. Remember, this life is short. Eternity is long. So number one, know who you are. Number two, 
which kind of spins right out of number one. Be encouraged by who you are. You may think that your life is out of control. And indeed, all of our lives ultimately are out of our control. But they're not out of God's control. If God planned eternity and redemptive history to save you, He can plan the details of your life for His glory and your joy. And you can trust Him with it. As God's child, your heartaches now, no matter how intense they may be, are nothing compared to the glory to be revealed to you and in you for eternity. In fact, that's exactly what Paul said in Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings, and Paul had suffered more than any of us here, I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. So number two, be encouraged by who you are. Number three, live like who you are. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you claim to be a Christian, live like a Christian. If you claim to believe God's word, learn it and apply it to life. May God give us grace to live that way. Let's pray.